Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dragon Radio. I'm your host, Emma Ruschak. I'm here with my special guest, Jim Bastion. Welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about what you do? Well, I'm currently retired. I'm a former high school psychology and history teacher. I converted to capitalism after that, got an MBA, and then had a long business career and began writing as my retirement began to approach. That's a busy, busy career. So your book is about? It's Wisconsin Logging Camp, 1921. And uh, clearly that is a a main theme, Mm -hmm. but the Wisconsin Logging Camp is really a microcosm of the transformation that was occurring in 1920 worldwide. And it really is a platform for which I could investigate that transformational process. That's one of the things that intrigues me and one of the things I really like writing about are periods in history that are particularly transformational. And for example, in 1920, you had the end of World War I, you had the largest human migration in history, you had the Russian Revolution, the Spanish flu pandemic, prohibition, women's suffrage, you had to transition from Victorian and Edwardian culture to the roaring twenties. I mean, it doesn't get much broader. You look at the twenties at any part of the world and it's just probably chaos at that time. But at the same time, you have so much going on that led us to what freedoms we have today. That's exactly right. And, and the, you know, we've all done, not everyone, but many of us have done some ancestry research. Mm-hmm. And we, the internet has proved to be an enormous resource. And there are DNA testing and a litany of other resources we can use. But largely the data that's accessible is who they were, where they came from, and when. But to me, the more compelling questions are why did they leave? What were their experiences and how did they get here? And that oftentimes is left up to family lore, Mm -hmm. which is notoriously inaccurate. (laughs) Yes, it is. I mean, if you go through our family lore and you go through the actual historical DOS roles and everything else, and it's a completely different story, but then you go, it's so much more complex than what you thought precisely what my experience has been as well, Melissa. I mean, you go to 
any part of history, if you go through your ancestry, just a person's ancestry, and you go through, okay, I have ancestry, say Ireland. Well, how did they get here from Ireland? Were they part of the Irish slave trade back in the 1700s? Were they here as free individuals? When did they come? How did they get here? How were they treated when they were here? There's so many little things to go through. And then you have like your book, The Warring Twenties. I mean, everything's happening at one time. Well, it is. And how I try to communicate that chaos, as you put it, of this transformational period was to follow two immigrant families. They're sort of the everyman immigrant, one from Germany following World War I as the vanquished, um, and then one from Poland, uh, a country that was absolutely devastated during World War I. And those two families became the aggregate of a litany of historical documentation and information that I had had. And so while this is a fiction, it is meticulously researched and I, am scru I scrupulously adhere to the facts and whatnot. But when I had, I had intended to write a history, but there were some gaps and I couldn't fill them with the historical component. So I then pivoted to fill in the gaps with fiction to make it all fit. But 95% of what's there is, is uh, historically yeah. accurate. And those are the best books when they're historically accurate. Now you can have any type of fiction in there. You can have science fiction, fantasy, whatever, but as long as the historical is accurate, those are the best books because it teaches you our history that so many people have forgotten and gets us back to today. Well, I think it's a very insightful comment. And one other aspect to it, I love the history and I wanted to write the history and was actually disappointed in myself that I needed to fictionalize that I couldn't get that research to. But um, people who don't like reading history, I mean, it's not everyone's cup of tea and it can be dry, but with historical fiction, that can be a more entertaining introduction to history. And for, for anyone who doesn't want to sit down and do their own research and read a history book, fiction can be a lot more entertaining and just as educational. It can be. There's so many good historical fiction books out there that the historical parts are so accurate because the people like you, the authors like you, are meticulous in getting everything straight. I think that's an important discipline if you're writing historical fiction. And as you, as you know, the, the, the range of, if you call your book historical fiction, the range of the amount of fiction that's in a historical fiction book is enormous. There mm -hmm. are people who write a fiction book and then just pick a place and a time and don't really do anything beyond that point, but simply place the setting in some era uh, yeah. or in a location that's of interest, but the history itself is very suspect. It's the story, but they are still called historical fiction. And that's why I appreciate your encouraging the historical side of it, because that is the side that, that I really tried to focus on. See, I love history. That's one of my things that for fun, I will read a history book, mm. <laughs> you know? So me doing a historical fiction, I go, okay, what era am I in today? You know, and it has sure. to be accurate for me as a reader to appreciate the history that's in the book. 
I can't read a historical fiction book that's just placed there and everything is wrong. Well, and I agree. And that's why I, I search for reading material as well. The, the two components of transformation that are in the book that are meticulously um, uh, historical. I, I mentioned the events that compelled the two families to leave Germany and Poland, um, but also the uh, logging in Wisconsin. Now that sounds like it's a very localized interest topic, but it's used as an example, kind of a microcosm of what was happening industrially across the world. Right. Um, in, the, in the case of, of the logging industry, just as, a, as an example, the diesel engine was not powerful enough to drive a train or even a large tractor. And the technology of the tank that was used in World War I, the advent of that, it's interesting that the wars generally spur on technological development, mm -hmm. but it hadn't yet reached commercial. So you have steam power operating railroads, for example, and the large machinery. Well, if you're in the logging industry in northern Wisconsin or in northern Europe, and it gets 30 or 40 below zero, and your equipment runs on water, what could possibly go wrong, right? Yeah, well, I can't think of one reason why nothing would go wrong with that. So you, so they weren't able to use the technology that was available, steam engine. They had to use oxen and, and horses. Mm -hmm. um, and consequently, uh, logging was just very labor intensive, as were a number of other industries. Industry was still extremely labor intensive, despite the fact that we were within the Industrial Revolution. One of the things that led me to write this book many, many years ago, I read an obscure article from a 1936 newspaper that described three loggers and a boy finding a man a corpse, a petrified body in a tree, loggers cutting down the tree. And I thought, oh my gosh, well, talk about an interesting area to examine. So I went pedal to the metal in trying to investigate this and was looking for loggers that might have been there and trying to get firsthand accounts and tried to find where would the body have gone. And I traced them all. Well, once the internet had sufficient information digitalized and available, it became clear that the article was a hoax. And that the author of, and that the uh, uh, editor simply needed a two-inch filler and so made up the story. So he set me off in this wild goose chase. But I had done eight or ten years of research on logging and on northern Wisconsin and uh, records of, in, in this case, uh, uh, French exploration, thinking that that would be the logical person who might be in a tree petrified with homespun clothes and a musket as what was reported, but again, it was false. Um, but in that, and consequently, that's that's the root of this book. And I, I don't wanna jump ahead of ourselves here, but there's a second book <laughs> that is going to be published in 2022 that includes the man in the tree. So I, that was the root of book one, but there was just too much information. So it actually is part of book two. So is book two like, going into World War II then, or is it a continuation from where you at, or what time period is that one in? 1970. Okay. And the protagonist in book two is the daughter of the main character in book one, who immigrated as a boy from Germany. And 
that's the story is of this boy's experience in a logging camp as a chickadee, which is actually a job in a logging camp, which intrigued me as well. When I started researching, I said there was a boy with these loggers. What's a boy doing with the loggers? And they labeled his job as a chickadee. How interesting that would be. So looking into child labor. So this all evolved. And I had, again, all of this information, all of this historical research that I found interesting. And I thought there might be a book or two there. So I choose 1970 Mm -hmm. because that's the next transformational period with the Vietnam War. Yeah, I was going to say that Vietnam, I mean, right there you have anti-government, government sentiment, you have the war going on again, you have everything's changing again, you have the civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s, you have everything again as a big mess, but to live through it. That, that's what it, that's when it's a mess that kind of is the magnet that draws me to investigate it and dive in and take a look at it. And uh, I mean, you have to have a tangled mess, the weaving of everything going on at one time in, in the entire world at that time. And then you step back and go, oh, this changed this. We got technology from this part because we needed it here and then we have women going back to work we have you know different things depending on the era and it's just we wouldn't be here we wouldn't have the internet without these tangled messes from before well that's exactly right and those are my feelings and and you know you look at 1920 and if you were to, well, you know, they had a pandemic they were dealing with at the time and they had a huge immigration problem and there were huge issues regarding discrimination and women's rights as well as minorities. Well, I, if you eliminate some of the dates and some of the acronyms, you could be talking about today, those very issues with the pandemic and discrimination and women's rights. Um, uh, and so, you, you, you don't abandon what happened in the past. It either recurs or is simply a thread that follows throughout. I know. It is so, it's one thing to, you know, have the mess and live through it. And then it's another thing to investigate and see where we're at today. Well, that's right. And you, generally, when you do that, you'll say, my gosh, if I had known that, well, we should have been able to anticipate this was going to happen. Or those people went through exactly the same thing we did, mm-hmm. or we, I'm experiencing. And and again, I don't cycling back just a little bit. When you're researching ancestry, the lights go off. When you begin looking at this is what we're experiencing. Oh my gosh, those were the same events that were occurring when my ancestors left Poland or Germany or wherever they migrated from. I'll bet they were experiencing those same phenomena. Mm-hmm. You have women's rights. How many times in history have we done women's rights? We have wars going on. Every great invention has came from a war. I must, I'm sorry to say that, but that's how things happen. We have uh, unity going on post-wars. We have, uh, you know, anti-government government sentiment, where the line's drawn. That's every decade, I think. We always, it's a circle. History is a circle. If we don't learn from it, we repeat it. (laughs) Exactly. 
I had a wonderful history teacher. He said, if you don't understand the circle, you're bound to repeat the circle until you get off. <laughs> That's an <laughs> insightful comment. <laughs> it is, but it, that gives us so much fonder for our stories. Well, that's right. I mean, the written word, we go back and we do our history, we do our research, we do our science fiction, we do whatever we're doing. And it be, is because of something that happened before now. Yes. I, mean, I find that fascinating as well. It is. I mean, even technology. I mean, think about it. Uh, we didn't have Zoom and stuff like this in the early 2000s. What happened for us to get Zoom and camera phones and all this? We had the World Trade Centers. That's where we got the camera phones from. We took a tragedy and turned it into technology we use today. Well, it certainly was an accelerant. Yes. It was a very, very hefty accelerant but i mean everything that happens our technology how we live how we dress everything happens because of some ball of mess we're going through indeed so when in 2022 are we expecting the second book the middle of the year somewhere around the middle of the year so july august area yes that's right that would be awesome because when you have a series started and there's so yes. many different parts if you go uh bringing um to let's see the next catastrophe ball of mess would be desert storm yes so in chronological order just throwing my knowledge of history out there sure. Sure. <laughs> so book two is slightly different in that while we focus a great deal of focus on the history and because of the tumultuous time regarding um, the Vietnam War and racial protest, I focus, the main character is at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which was one of a half dozen universities which were the core of student rights protesting and advocacy and, and whatnot. That was the blowing up of the chemistry building and just a litany of things that took it to another level. And the, the main character is going to school at that time. So that's my, the way I entered that time area. But I mentioned that my interest levels are both history and psychology. Mm -hmm. And while the historical components in this book are there, I wanted to take a little different avenue. I wanted to drift down the area of psychology a bit. Okay. And the areas of psychology that interest me that were incorporated in book two are the sort of the, the paranormal components of psychology. Okay. Um, I'm not a big advocate of uh, incarnation and those kinds of things. On the other hand, um, I take the approach that if you are, if we're logical and we look for a plausible explanation for unusual sightings and beliefs and whatnot, and we can't find a plausible or logical explanation, then really we'd be well served to investigate the implausible. And that's really what the, this book is about, is the title is Willa's Pursuit. And Willa, the main character, is pursuing the implausible explanation for her, and in her case, her challenge is called Xenoglossia. And Xenoglossia, Zyno is foreign, Glossia is language. Mm -hmm. And it is the sudden onset of the ability 
to speak a foreign language that you've never studied, never been exposed to, and it's often accompanied by memories and thoughts and perceptions and whatnot. It's rare, but it's not any rarer than multiple personality, and we see books about that. And today, we call it in English, foreign accent syndrome. Oh, there you go. There are exactly 66 case studies since 1903 on this subject. And how is it that you just happen to know that? Because <laughs> know that? I suffer from it. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Well, you may, I'll, I'll send you a copy of the book the moment it comes out. You might find it of interest. And I'd also be very interested in your perspective on it. I, I would be happy to give you my perspective on it because there's only been, a, like he said, it's very rare. And when I, I talk good English now, but when I woke up from my craniotomy, I was speaking Romanian. That is exactly what the symptoms are. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, I'll bet you had difficulty getting someone to take that seriously as a prof professionals, your doctors or whatnot. Well, my doctor was from uh, Russia, okay? So mm -hmm. he was okay speaking with me and we're getting people, well, she's been to the country before. No, I have, I've never, even to this day, I have not left the country of the United States. So I have never been exposed to Romanian language. I was never read to it. I was, you know, completely, we still don't know where we picked this up from. But it's something I'm passionate about learning on a second language now or multiple language sure. because you've got a good head start. <laughs> yeah, I have a good head start on it. So I'm learning a language that I slip into without will. Uh, I wonder statistically what the odds are of an author who's writing a book and randomly selected to go on a show talking about something in which there are 63 cases since 1900 and have the interviewer, well, by golly, that's what I have. I wonder what the odds of that are. I, I can't believe they're I very don't, high. I don't think they're very high at all. I mean, if you take all 66 cases, and I think there's only three of us alive right now. And yeah, to be, yeah. And they're poorly documented and they haven't been taken seriously by professionals because they've just passed it off. Generally, when we don't have a plausible explanation, mm -hmm. we say, well, they're either crackpots craving attention mm -hmm. or they're delusional. Yes. Um, and but if it's happening there, that's the plausible explanation because they can't think of a plausible explanation. That's why you need to pursue the implausible. Yes, because I actually went to my counselor because here I am speaking the language my family doesn't know. I'm getting depressed because I can't communicate with my family. So I found a counselor and she's from, guess what, Romania. Romania. So we're talking to each other and going through counseling sessions. She's like, you've just been here a week or two, haven't you? I'm like, no, I was born here. I speak English. I don't know where this uh language came from i had to take my birth certificate <laughs> it got to that point sure the skepticism is so rampant mm -hmm. it is even in the, any medical field it's just not there because it's so rare something triggers it and no one can explain why 
Yes. I mean, even with well, technology today and to go back to the 70s, you don't have the technology of today and they still can't explain it. Well, that's right. Although the, the, the progress in psychology, although I'm sure there are psychologists who would want to rip my tongue out for saying this, but the, the progress hasn't been as pronounced as, as it is, say, in medicine. Mm-hmm. where the di- diagnostic tools and the treatments, uh, the immunization, <laughs> speed of immunization development, those have just been miraculous on the medical side. But when you talk about dealing with profound um, illness, mental challenges, or whether it's depression or anxiety or stress ailments, there really hasn't been the same degree of advancement. And so we're looking at a pharmaceutical mix that sometimes will be used to treat it, um, but often it's just counseling. And it really is in part predicated on the skill of that individual therapist, as opposed to them using the science to its fullest advantage. Very true. I mean, there's areas that we are so advanced in. We have robotics doing surgery, but at the same time, the human mind, either through counseling or things, it's more, here's a pill, call me in the morning. Well, that's right. And if it doesn't work, we'll try another one. And it's it's really a pharmaceutical experiment as opposed to a psychological treatment. Yes. And that's the way it's been since the 20s. If you th- it hasn't changed. Uh, and that is precisely to my point. I, and uh, that's been my experience as well. One of the things about both this book and the second book, I always like to, what can a reader take from this other than you gave them some facts that might be easier for them to absorb because it's in a story? It's dealing with challenges. And in the first case, the boy's challenge had to do with him being orphaned on the way as a immigrant and seven years old, orphaned on a ship on the way to America. Uh, he had challenges to overcome. And in the second book, it's his subsequently his daughter who has the same affliction that you were relating. Mm-hmm. And, and what is the strategy that tends to work? And where what I landed on was kind of a threefold strategy that the boy used and will the main, other main character, and that is self-advocacy, mm-hmm. the support of friends and family, and then professional assistance. And whatever the challenge is, if it's legal or medical or psychological, or if you are advocating for yourself, well, if you're not, who's going to? You need to be your own champion of your own cause. Yeah, you do. And if you can get help from family and friends, that only, that that it, it, uh, emboldens you. Mm-hmm. And then if there's professional assistance available, well, for heaven's sakes, if, if, it's, if it's available and you need it, use it. And that, that triumvirate of, approach to solving the problem using those three things may be a way for helping people who are having trouble organizing how to which how to attack their challenge well that may be a, a the shorthand way to do it i'm not trying to minimize mm-hmm. but just to get started sometimes it's too big of a problem to get your hands around but if you break it down into smaller bits oh i need to do this, self-advocate, make sure my family and friends are on board and find out what professional services or help is available. Oh, that's easier to solve than, oh my gosh, my world is crumbling. Exactly. I mean, we can't ever figure out, you know, 
what we're doing until we advocate for self, we have to stop first. Just stop, look around, see what you have. Then you self-advocate. Then you talk to your family and friends, try to find family and friends that can help and you know motivate you. And then you seek the professional. And sometimes you still have, if you have a professional, you still have to um, advocate with a professional. Well, well, that's right. That's exactly right. But we're almost out of time. So where can our listeners and our viewers find you? Well, they can find me at my website, which is wisconsinloggingcamp.com. The book, Wisconsin Logging Camp 1921, is available pretty much anywhere. It's on Amazon, most bookstores, libraries. Bookstores will certainly have access to it. They'll order it for listeners. A lot of libraries are ca- uh, carrying it. And uh, and hopefully the, uh, well, and then the second book will be coming out next summer. The publisher is Bauer House. And that's where my first book is as well. Thank you so much. And thank you for being on the show. This has been fun. And we, I can't believe we touched on a subject that no one knows about. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not true. You did. And uh, uh, was uh, you, you caught me uh, aback uh, by that, but I was uh, delighted. And mm-hmm. thank you so much for having me on the show. I really enjoyed it. It was really a pleasure to talk with you. This was really a fun interview. And for all of our listeners and our readers, happy listening.